Thank you, Scott. Um, children, you are dismissed to Gospel Project, those volunteering. Thank you for all your work. You are a blessing to us. If you're uh, visiting with us and you have children, just follow the sea of people right now, and uh, they'll help you get connected uh, to where your child may need to be. Uh, but we're so grateful that you're here. Um, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, uh, which if you do not have a Bible, we have some provided for you. I do believe it's page 677 uh, in the Bible in the, uh, the seat in front of you, so feel free to grab that. If you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that one home, uh, our gift to you this morning. Well, it's an interesting morning, water from the sky, what's that, huh? Like, who knew? First thing my uh, kids said this morning are, did I say kid? Kids with an S, I have two. Um, they both, as soon as they saw the water, it was like, rain boots, rain boots. I'm like, all right, that makes sense. Uh, the only thing about my son is he finds every puddle on the way over, right? Just crash, crash. A lot of fun for him. Um, well, uh, uh, my name is Brian Jerry. I'm a pastoral resident here. Uh, deeply enjoying my time, learning a lot, and every now and then to get the distinct privilege to be able to share with you from God's Word. So, we're going to continue this morning through our uh, series on Philippians. And I'd like to read uh, the scripture first today, and then we're going to dive in from there, okay? Uh, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 14 and read to verse 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poor, I may be proud, rather, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So I discovered something in seminary. Now, when I tell you what it is, it's not going to seem like a big deal, but it was actually a big deal for me. Bookends. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought I would see. A lot of blank stares going, bookends? Well, before seminary, I didn't have much use of bookends because I never read. Um, and if I did read, I certainly wasn't reading 20 books at one time. Uh, that is quite a process and a skill you have to learn. Um, at the beginning of each semester, I would get the pile of books that I needed for each course. And then I would put it on my desk with bookends. <laughs> Who knew? They could be right there. And I could just grab one instead of walking to my bookshelf. Brilliant idea. So there they sit, reminding me and sometimes taunting me uh, what I was going to be going through for the semester. You see, the bookends kind of had a way of uh, highlighting the stuff in the middle. Uh, bookends had a way of me taking stuff off the shelf that I needed for that semester to be focused on and to think about. And so from left to right, like I said, they showed me and reminded me. Here's what's interesting. In a similar fashion, New Testament writers had a technique that often used to frame a section of text. They kind of created bookends, whether it be grammatically or through themes or through repetition or contrasting ideals. But what they wanted to do was to highlight a section of text. 
Well, whether it was from theme or structure, they wanted to kind of put some emphasis on that text and sometimes show its connection to the bookends themselves, whatever these ideals were. I don't know if you caught it this morning, but as we read the text that we'll be looking at, it begins with grumbling and disputing, and it ends with glad and rejoicing. Hmm. That seems to be quite different. Not only are they opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're also commands. One, not to do, and one, that we should do. Not really should. Actually, Paul would say that we must do, because they're commands. They're bookends, they're similar, but yet they're very different. Perhaps all the stuff in the middle between these contrasting ideals could lead us this morning from grumbling and disputes towards glad and rejoicing. Perhaps Paul knew that grumbling and disputes are easy, uh, but glad and rejoicing, eh, it's not so easy. So he starts with grumbling, and then he walks us through his thinking, which leads towards the final command of rejoicing. I mean, which is kind of helpful, right? How difficult is it to be a people marked by gladness, to be marked by rejoicing rather than grumpy, argumentative, sour Christians? That's not always an easy thing to do daily. I don't know about you, but sometimes I prefer to grumble. Sometimes I prefer to just be mad. Well, I think it started last week when we tried to answer this question, how do we move from grumbling, disputing, to glad and rejoicing? Well, last week, Pastor Chuck reminded us that this high and lofty view that we saw in verses 1 through 11 in chapter 2, was always meant to find its way into the lowlands of everyday life. This grand view of Christ was always meant to find its way down into everyday life. We are most certainly, as Paul said in a few verses before this, to work out our salvation, secured for us by our great Savior, right? Not work for, but work out our salvation in our daily lives. Christ must affect our daily living. I mean, honestly, that sounds so simplistic, but if there was one thing I think I'd want you to hear is that Christ, the glorious, great Savior, must affect our daily living. We should work out our salvation continually because God is working in us constantly. That was super helpful for me last week to think of my salvation in terms of I do not work for it, but it does affect the way that I live each and every day because God is constantly working in me. And this morning we see one of those ways that salvation should work out in our daily lives. But before we get there, before we get to the specifics of the commands, particularly the first one of not to do, let me, kind of like Pastor Chuck did last week, let me commend you this morning in regards to how you do not grumble and dispute. At least, I don't see them. One of the things that Lauren and I were so deeply um, encouraged by, are drawn to, when we think about Churchill Mill, is a deep commitment to being transparent. That, that is a rare occasion and quite unique in regards to when you think about church a lot of times. 
But we were struck by the transparency of this place. It's a rare occasion to really be a part of a place that values each other so much that you'll actually say the difficult things. You see, difficult things are usually driven out, our, our willingness to say the difficult thing typically is driven out of a love for that individual, driven out of something way beyond ourselves because who really wants to say the hard thing? I don't. But we were struck by Churchill Mill's general traits of being transparent. So let me say on the outset here, before we dive into the nitty gritty of grumbling and disputing, is thank you. Thank you for being a church that models this so well. And as I studied, I was reminded of the truths because I get to see them on display quite often. Now, of course, we're not perfect by no means. But I just want to take a few moments to say it is quite rare when we think of church world. We think of Christians, and some of our experiences might reflect that. I'm sorry that you had to experience that, but guess what? Here's a place where it happens on a consistent basis. But we don't want to fall into the temptation of becoming a place that doesn't do that. It'd be very easy to take something that we have been committed to and begin to move into doing it. So let's look at Paul's commands this morning. The first one of not to do. What is grumbling? The word literally means, this is fascinating to me, an utterance made in a low tone of voice of discommitment. Discommitment. That's not right. Discontentment. So a low utterance, a small voice, not very loud. So really, it's kind of complaining in a behind-the-scenes kind of way. We make these utterances of complaints in a low voice, in a sense, behind the scenes. Well, what were the Philippians doing? Why is it that Paul feels compelled to say, do not grumble or dispute? Well, we're not sure exactly, exactly what they were doing. But what I do find interesting is that this, with this language of grumbling, he takes them back to the wilderness days. For some of you, are like, oh, that's interesting. Some of you, are like, I don't care. But... He takes them back a little bit, and therefore, he's kind of putting on display of the inappropriateness of grumbling or murmuring is how we see it in the Old Testament. So you might want to take a few minutes this afternoon. This is totally up to you. But look over at Exodus 16. Look at Deuteronomy 32. Look at Daniel 12. You'll see the many Old Testament allusions that Paul is making in this text. But suffice it to say today, here's my main point out of bringing that up. Paul puts them into God's big story. Paul places them into the history of God's people, and he did not want them to be people who grumbled. He did not want them to fall into the temptation of disputes. He did not want them to be like past generations. He does not want them to end up becoming a crooked and twisted generation. You see, grumbling hasn't worked very well for the people of God. If you follow the storyline of the Bible, you realize the moments of grumbling weren't their greatest moments. And Paul, with this quick word, I think he causes them to think, oh yeah, I've read that story before. You see, grumbling does not breed the unity so clearly called for in the beginning of chapter 2. And I think there's probably two ways that you and I fall into grumbling. We have a tendency to do that, I think, if I were to kind of summarize in two particular ways. Hurts from others. You guys know as well as I do 
that when you live in close relationships with others, inevitably someone's going to say something that's hurtful. And sometimes people will say nothing at all to you when you think they should at least say hello. We experience, as the family of God, hurts. So the application here is if you have issues, you don't settle for low tones of complaining in a behind-the-scenes fashion, but rather you seek out the brother or sister to which you have a complaint. And in Christian charity, you discuss and resolve. See, this is what is meant by membership. We collectively agree together to commit to unity and not let the, the cancer of grumbling grow and ultimately end in death. Death of your friendships and more importantly, death of the effectiveness of the church in our community. You have probably more than likely, if you showed up to church more than two days, you probably have experienced hurt from someone. It's inevitable as we do life together. But the tendency is to simply grumble with low tones behind the scenes. Church, that is not how we're called to think about our hurts from others. They are real and they are difficult. But our response is not to grumble. Well, the second way I think you and I have a tendency to grumble is in complaining about simply doing the things necessary in our daily pursuit of God. I don't know about you, but there's days when I simply just don't want to do anything, primarily in regards to pursuing holiness or serving others. We oftentimes become lackadaisical. That's a great word. But we do, right? And we, we, we tire of pursuing holiness. We get fed up with giving our time. We don't want to care for others as much as we know that we should. I've been there <laughs> quite frequently, unfortunately. But the application here that Paul has in mind is that we live out our Christian faith with joy rather than begrudgingly. And I know as soon as I say that, you go, but you don't understand my situation. You're right, I don't. But I most certainly think that Christ does. I most certainly think that the scriptures know you better than you know yourself, and it still concludes that you should not grumble. You should not be given to disputes. Nothing reaps more or causes doubt about the effectiveness of the gospel to the world around us than when Christians grumble than when the church is in constant dispute. Because I think the purpose that Paul has in mind and that comes directly from the text is that not grumbling and disputing, the reason that we do that is so that we are blameless and innocent. If you, if you follow along in his thinking in, in verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent. This is the purpose for not grumbling and not disputing. You see, there's, there's something about not grumbling and not disputing that presents them, and I think we can make a strong case, presents us as blameless and innocent in front of the world around us. After all, we are the children of God. Church, we are the children of God. 
You see, Paul says that you may be blameless, comma, the very next statement is to remind them that you are the children of God. We have a loving Father who has our best interest in mind. He is good. And he has adopted us into his family and made us his children. Now, why this small, seemingly kind of sidestep of identifying them and reminding them of who they are in Christ. Why does he feel compelled to give them this title to say you are the children of God? Well, perhaps one of our greatest ways of defeating grumbling and disputing is to be reminded of who the people are we're grumbling about. You see, if we are children, then... The person next to you is a brother or sister. As good or bad as that might be, the person to your right, the person to your left, or other way around for you, is your brother or your sister. This is no mere person that you're just fed up with. This is a person that is in the family of God. Now, This is not to say that grumbling will not occur in family. Of course it does. But it's not long before, hopefully, it's not long before that grumbling sees the light of day. It cannot stay in low tones behind the scenes. It's either forgotten or exposed. A family who doesn't do that is destroyed. Some of you, perhaps your own experience within your family is because people chose grumbling. People chose the low low tones behind the scenes way to deal with the hurts and the pains. Well, notice that we are children of God. Children of God. So that makes God our Father. So if our grumbling falls into that second category of complaining about doing things for holiness and service, then guess what? It ultimately is directed towards God, towards our Father, who we can emphatically say has our best interests in mind. So the things that should be normative for the Christian life should not be burdensome, but rather a loving God who says, this is what is best for you. See, Paul appeals to their standing with God and indicates that disputing is not becoming of the people of God. And it does not leave us blameless before the world. Matter of fact, it causes a nasty blemish on our face before, as Paul put it, a crooked and twisted generation. It puts a black eye, so to speak, on the church when others look in and see our response to each other. It puts a gaping wound on our face that you can't but help notice and go, huh. It's like the stain on someone's shirt and they're talking and all you can see is the stain. Like, uh, stay, what did you say? (laughs) It draws most of the attention. There was a commercial years ago where the guy was in an interview and the stain was just talking the whole time while he was talking. That's so true. That's exactly how the church is perceived. According to Paul here, if we're given 
to the tendency of grumbling and disputing. But perhaps it would be helpful here to take just a second and explain the intense terminology, I don't know if you caught it, that Paul is using to describe those who are not believers, those who would say, I am not a Christian. This is an intense term, crooked and twisted generation. See, any given Sunday, we have a, a privilege of having a multiple group of people from various walks of life and various opinions about Christ. So I acknowledge that that term, crooked and twisted, might sound a bit harsh. It is. You see, back in chapter 1, just a, a little bit of review in verse 28, we learned that the church in Philippi had harsh opponents. They opposed what Christians hold dear, the gospel. You see, they think differently, and they bend what the gospel has laid straight, which is a full devotion to God through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. They have bent what the gospel has laid straight. The general population in Philippi would promote a full devotion, particularly to Caesar. A misdirection of where their full allegiance should fall. A distortion of the truth that Christ really is the only place where one puts their trust and hope. So Paul puts them, the children of God, in contrast to the general population at Philippi, based upon those significant and fundamental truths. See, they are crooked and twisted in the sense that they are taking normal longings of a heart and putting it on the wrong thing and not God. They are seeking salvation outside of God. See, this causes tremendous problems, namely their destruction and eternity apart from God, their Father. You see, Paul wants to uh, tell the church to remain faithful to God's wisdom, which in particular in this instance is not to grumble and dispute. You see, one of the glaring differences that should be observable of the church is our ability to resolve disputes, our ability to dialogue about differences in a healthy, productive way. This is why Paul builds this really stark contrast between children of God and crooked generation. There are differences. There should be differences. And those differences are most clearly seen in the way we speak about each other and the way we treat each other. We are called to something more. Our being saved was intended to push us out into the world and as the text says, to shine as lights. You see, we are to live as lights. We are to shine the goodness of God to the world around us. The way of the Savior described earlier in chapter 2, it compels us forward in humble servanthood to each other and to the world. There should and must be a stark contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. See, the wisdom of God breaks forth into the darkness, and it brings actual joy. It actually leads to glad and rejoicing. 
is most clearly seen in the way that we treat each other. Church, it is so most easily seen and most clearly seen in the way that we treat one another. You see, one of our greatest responsibilities, and therefore the mission of the church, is to make disciples. And our example is a part of that great high calling that we're privileged to be a part of. You see, grumbling has a way to put a lid on our ability to shine as lights. Grumbling disputes have a way of putting a lid on our ability to shine as lights. It hinders our ability to shine as hope. It hinders our ability to shine as lights who have hope. Because guess what? The world around us knows that things are not as they should be. They see it every day and they long for something more. Church, we have the answer. The way of the Savior most clearly depicts of where our hope lies. But grumbling and disputing have a way of marring our ability to shine as lights. This is the second reason why Paul gives the strong command not to grumble. One, they're children of God. Secondly, you're called to shine as lights. And it hinders that. They're lights, and therefore they must clean up their internal actions in order to be able to shine bright. And guess what? They do this by holding fast the word of life. Paul so beautifully works them through all this middle stuff, right? To move them from grumbling and rejoicing. And one of the key ways that he says that we are to shine as light is to hold fast to the word of life. Hold firm. Hold it out. Keeping the word of life is a radical commitment to listen and heed the words of God. We must give the word of life tangible presence in the world through our life and through our speech, primarily in how we treat one another. We are called to bring the word of life, give it tangible presence in the world around us. And isn't it interesting that Paul calls the gospel here, because that's what the word of life is, that he calls it the word of life. It is life indeed to live according to God's word. To live according to God's wisdom is life. And trusting his means of salvation only found in God, the Son. This is life. We have that word of life, and we are to hold firm to it. We are to hold it out to show that life is found in God, the Son. See, this is true life, and certainly leads to glad and rejoicing. And this is no ordinary rejoicing, because Paul says in verse 17, even if I am poured out, what is he saying there? Even if I die for living out the wisdom of God, for proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel in my life, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon their sacrificial offering, their service, uh, of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. 
Paul shows us how this is true joy. He shows us that this glad rejoicing is a bit different because it stands the greatest test, which is death. Paul, with a strong statement, dispels any notion that true joy, that glad and rejoicing only comes by having breath. Now, that's a good thing. I'm all right with that. But remember a few weeks ago when we covered that, that weird phrase of to live is Christ, to die is gain? Remember how godly ambition goes well beyond the grave. So Paul says, what drives my glad rejoicing, that as I do that, if I'm poured out and I face death, I still will rejoice. And here's the practical application to live as Christ, to die as gain. How frustrating that must have been for Paul's opponents. Let's kill him. That's cool. Ah, oh, let's make him stay alive. Hey, that's cool too. Oh, we can't get this guy down, right? I heard a pastor one time kind of bring that to light, and I really laughed for a long time at that. Let's kill him. Okay. Let's leave him alive. Okay. Because what godly ambition can drive each and every day, and we can still have joy, but even if death results, we still have tremendous joy. Paul is saying, I am in jail. And if my life is poured out, much like this Old Testament offering, if it's poured out over your offering of service, it's great. His death will only add to their life. Will only add to their life. He's happy to do it. You see, we are most luminous when we joyously live in unity by holding firm the word. And might I add, that leads to sacrificial service to God and others. You see, we are most luminous when we joyously live in unity by holding firm the word. And perhaps I could add, that leads to sacrificial service to God and others. Well, lastly, Paul ends the section with our last bookend. A glaring contrast, a radical difference from where he started. We've walked a bit of a unique journey at this point to get to glad and rejoicing. Here's what he says in verse 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So you too should be glad and rejoice. See, Paul's only conclusion based on his position with God, children of God, right? Having the words of life and I should hold on to it and I should hold it out for others to see, and a desire to live out his mission to shine as light, he can only conclude that you should be glad and rejoice. He then points his finger to you, to me, to the church at Philippi, and commands them to do the same. We must move beyond grumbling and disputes towards glad and rejoicing by holding fast the word of life. Church, it is life. To shine forth in darkness with what? Our sacrificial service. That drives us. We're glad to do it. We're happy to do it because we are the children of God. So here's some things we might should consider together this morning as we wrap up. Number one, 
The acts of dissension lay at the root of unity, ready to strike at any moment. Don't sharpen its blade with grumbling. Do you realize that dissension lay awaiting to strike at our unity, to cut unity in half? Please, church, do not sharpen its blade by grumbling. Let us be a people who willingly pursue brothers and sisters and share our hurts, share our pains. Let us walk forth as we pursue God in joy by being mindful that we're children of God and we're called to something very purposeful that we have the privilege of being involved with. Don't sharpen the blade of dissension by grumbling. Secondly, I think we can say, as members of Churchill Mill, things should never be behind the scenes. I really think we can draw from this that the gospel allows things to come to the forefront, to be dealt with in grace and strengthen the body. I think that's why Paul can so quickly say, do not settle for low tones of discontentment, but rather bring those things to the forefront to be dealt with in grace and allow it to strengthen the body. Well, thirdly, joyous, sacrificial service should be the overwhelming trait of Church on Mill. We should be so identified with joy that the moment someone hears Church on Mill, they say, well, that's a joyous group of people. I mean, they should literally come connected together. Now, does that mean everything's going to be perfect? You're going to be happy every day? Oh, no. But joy settles our heart, doesn't it? That we still rejoice when things aren't the way that they should be because you and I know that they one day will. We should be marked by joy. Not only joy, but joyous, sacrificial service. It's amazing to me that when we live out sacrificial service, I get more joy. That's radical to me. That actually doesn't make sense. Christians don't have good math. We really don't. Three equals one, what? Like, how does that work? Like, sacrificial service equals joy. <laughs> Not in this lifetime. It, it feels counterintuitive, but yet Paul is saying, once our rejoicing and our joy is focused on something that can transcend our grave and our suffering, well, yes, joy can be the result. And lastly, which I don't have on the screen, but let me just take for a few moments. Uh, let me acknowledge, this text is primarily driven at the church. Yes, it is very much driven to those who say, yes, I am a Christian, I am a believer, I am a follower of Christ. I'm trusting him for my salvation. But I know that many of you here this morning are investigating this whole church thing, this Jesus nonsense. Uh, but let me suggest something to you. Because oftentimes it does sound like nonsense. But Paul mentions in this particular text this thing called the day of Christ which means there will be a day when Christ returns. I don't know if you caught that or saw that or wondered, what does this language mean? Paul appeals to the time when Christ returns and says, I want you, church, to be found as the children of God, not the crooked and twisted generation. So if you're here and investigating and wondering, can I ask a question for you? in all love and concern, 
How will you be found on that day? Paul's argument is at the day of Christ that you will be found as children of God, and I will rejoice in that. Please hear my desire and my tremendous amount of love for you, but how will you be found in that day? As children of God or as a crooked and twisted generation? It's imperative for us to consider that deep and difficult question. This morning, if you are investigating and, and curious, please find somebody. We, we could talk for hours about this stuff. Find myself, find a leader. But I strongly encourage you to ask yourself that question. Church, I strongly concern, what am I to say? I strongly uh, charge you, command you, <laughs> to think through what we've been talking about. Are you a grumbling individual? Are you bent towards grumbling? Perhaps we could change this morning, and we could become a people who rejoice. So let's pray. Father God, I am grateful for your scriptures. Lord, they really do not leave any stone unturned. Father, it deals with our lives. It deals with the difficult things, and it presses into our life. Because as Paul said, there is no way that we should proclaim Christ and say that he's changed us, but yet our life doesn't look any differently. So may we be a church that demonstrates by the way that we live the gospel around the world. And Father, may we be a people who declare and hold fast and hold the word of life out to show how our lives are changed. So I thank you for this morning, and I ask you to work on our hearts as we walk away. I see your name we pray.